Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, at 12% of the state's population, Latinos make up one of Massachusetts' largest ethnic groups. The last few years have seen significant growth in the widely diverse Latino communities with roots in Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Colombia, and Guatemala. And while Latino workers are the backbone of the local economy, they are disproportionately low-wage workers. Latino nonprofits have helped fill in the gaps, providing vital services to local Latino communities. And yet many Latino nonprofits in Massachusetts also struggle to make ends meet. During this Hispanic Heritage Month, a look at the roadblocks to philanthropic funding and the efforts to increase access. Later in the show, no question that pop culture has a broad and ongoing impact on all of American culture. Now a pop culture aficionado turned culture critic shares how it has guided her life and career. Pop culture is shaping us, and we have the power also in many ways to shape it right back. From her tween obsessions with boy bands and age-inappropriate TV shows to her hot take on jolly old Santa, Aisha Harris traces pop culture's influence in her life in a new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. But first, joining me, Dr. Lorna Rivera, director of the Mauricio Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Lorna. Thank you for having me, Callie. Lena Kenyon, Director of Finance Operations and Development for the Chica Project. Welcome, Lena. Thank you, Callie. Happy to be here. And Tomas Gonzalez, Director of Community and Advocacy for Amplify Latinx. Hi, Tomas. Hello, Callie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, well, I'm glad to have you. I want to. Um, lay the groundwork for all the background so people can really get into the conversation. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Rivera, over at the Gaston Institute. Um, This was an institute that was actually established by the state legislature in 1989. And the mission is really to gather data and research about groups of Latinos in Massachusetts. You've just hired a new Latino public policy analyst there. And I want to talk about why that is so important to the work that you're doing there. Having this partnership with Amplify Latinx and the Greater Boston Latino Network, the three of our organizations are funding a full-time Latino policy analyst, and that's Bianca Ortiz-White. And we need this more than ever. Um, After COVID, we know, again, that food insecurity, housing, health inequities, educational gaps, these issues are just have grown uh, more, um, you know, important to address. Tomas, I think um, sometimes it's hard for people to uh, put it all together about what uh, how policy plays out in on the ground in our real lives. Um, and so when you're gathering this data, the you're one of the, the three 
Amplify Latinx, uh, your group, joining with the Greater Boston Latino Network, as Dr. Rivera has just said, and the Gaston Institute to gather this vital information. Uh, what we know about data is that you really don't know the story if you don't have the numbers. And as I'm understanding it, that's been a crucial problem here in understanding the economic and uh, other statuses of Latinos in Massachusetts. Can you uh, say more about that? One of the things that we um, endeavored to do in the beginning of this year was to commission a poll that helped to define what Latinos are and care about, um, all of the their makeups, um, in order to help policymakers best understand um, our community. Um, the collaboration between us and um, Gaston and Greater Boston Latino Network has a similar aim. Um, we can have all the data in the world, um, but we need to make sure that it connects with what's going on on the ground. Um, and Bianca is a great representation of that connection between the two. Our hope is that in the work that we do, we can match up what are good policies for Latinos moving forward and which ones are harmful um, to our communities, um, whether around education, housing, the rental um, bills that have been moving forward in the legislature. So making sure that um, we have that connection, both at the grass tops, um, at the research level, and both at the grassroots level to make sure that the policies that we're advocating for are, you know, have the research data that they need, but also have the backing and the consensus and support from the community that we're hoping to serve. Mm -hmm. And um, Lorna, explain why uh, nonprofits, and particularly ones, Latino nonprofits, play a vital role um, in doing this work and in, and in figuring out exactly where uh, the policies that are, as Tomas has said, important but not harmful come to play? Well, the most important lessons we've learned from COVID is the important role of our Latinx serving nonprofits because they were at the front lines of um just mobilizing, you know, food, um, you know, helping with housing. And our nonprofits locally have always uh, played a role in helping our immigrant communities. We've had some of the oldest sanctuary cities in the country. And so our, our faith-based organizations too, right, have, um, you know, been providing um, all kinds of access to healthcare and and even um you know clinics during covid and mobilizing um you know health information um is something like we saw with the equity now and beyond coalitions um so we know that nonprofits uh, also you know again provide vital services like after school programming um you know, housing assistance, um, you name it, right? Um, they're they're a vital uh, part of the trust that our community has as well. Um, you know, especially when we're working with mixed status families, you know, you know, you can go to your local nonprofit for help. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Lorna Rivera, director of the Gaston Institute at UMass Boston. Lena Canyon, director of finance operations and development for the Chica Project. And Tomas Gonzalez, director of community and advocacy for Amplify Latinx. We're discussing the state of Latino nonprofits in Massachusetts.
Lena Canyon, first tell us what the Chica Project is. It is a nonprofit, and it is one uh, led by uh, Latinos. So tell me all about it. Absolutely, Callie. So our nonprofit is a little bit over a decade old. And what we do is we meet youth, Latino uh, youth, women of color in particular, those that sit in the intersection of both racial and gender oppression. And we support them through a community mentoring program that is rooted in our curriculum. So we have our own curriculum that is positive youth development, culturally affirming, and explores pathways to success, whatever that may mean. It could mean college access, it could mean career exploration, and it could just mean healing and being in community. And so we've been doing that now for about a decade in the nonprofit space, first as a fiscally sponsored project, and now as an independent project. And to a lot of what Lorna said, we too have been, you know, when folks say, what do you do? We have a curriculum, we have this theory about what the power of somebody and their learning, especially for those who are both identifying as being in that intersection of racial and gender oppression, but we also are first responders. We are our community. We are representative and real advocates of the issues that are happening on the ground. And so having to respond and pivot, we're right there at the door when y'all need us. Um, I want to give my listeners a chance to hear from a student involved with the Chica Project talking about how the organization benefited her. Community is important to me because it Community is a place where I feel like I belong because I have multiple communities, my school community, my family community, and just the Chica Project just adds to it. And I feel like I fit in with them. So obviously you're uh, getting through to uh, the constituency that you most want to get through to, um, and that's very important, but it takes dollars, it takes support, um, and for a long time you guys were um, hanging on by a thread. So tell me a little bit about your history of 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 uh, having some uh, financial support and where you were and where you are now and how long it took you to get there. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think our journey is not unique uh, to an immigrant journey or the journey of somebody who is part of a resource-restricted or underrepresented group. Um, the thing that is unique about us when it comes to the nonprofit space is that we were founded by a woman of color who was from the community. And I think that that representation alone was really, really critical to how long we sustained ourselves with such little institutional funding. And so we started in 2011 with a group of 10 young women and 10 mentor women uh, who just got together and explored resources, network, what it meant to have a culturally affirming group. Um, like the young lady just said in the audio, right? Like you go to school, you learn your science and your math, and then at Chica Project, you're learning your social emotional, you're learning what your heritage is, how that empowers you and what your career explorations could be. And so while that is happening on the back end, you have all these women who are really volunteering. So we were sustained by volunteers for the first decade. Um, and as a fiscally sponsored project, again, because when you respond to someone, unless you already have that capital, you're just doing it 
yourself and pulling from the community. And when I say our community sustained us, I mean parents were coming through, driving folks to programming. It was a full family effort. You know, somebody's cousin was making the supplies. Somebody else's cousin was doing the recruitment. It was a true, true, true community effort. And that can only go so long. We know what the percentages look like when it comes to turnaround or burnout in nonprofit in particular, especially being the ones that are facing most of the social issues firsthand. And so for those 10 years, we had a budget of under $200,000. We are so grateful for the city school who was our fiscal sponsor, meaning they took on a lot of the legal status. They supported us with their EIN. And then in 2019, we became independent. And that was a really, really critical moment that a lot of nonprofits don't necessarily get to, um, given the trajectory of how nonprofit works all throughout, right? Like the access to philanthropic funds, the way that funders require you to have your own EIN or to have impact numbers or to have a budget that shows growth. And when you're on the ground responding to the work, you don't really have the capacity to do that. So in 2019, after we became independent, that's what, what that's what we focused on the most was our capacity. So we hired a full time. And the other thing is pouring into ourselves as well, right? Our volunteers can only volunteer for so long. And so if you're not paying the women that are in the organization equitable wages and being competitive with the market and allowing them to live in Boston, which we all know is expensive, um, then how are you actually going to sustain that program and that's really what spearheaded our growth is the ability for us to say let's pour in first so that we can continue pouring out and i'm happy to say that in 2023 we're now an organization of over 1.5 million dollars serving over five schools um, with continued impact within and without that's a that was a uh, a long journey and one actually not unfamiliar to a lot of small nonprofits and in particular, small nonprofits that are um, headed by uh, people of color. So I want to um, underscore something that both Lorna and Tomas um, talked about in that impact of COVID-19. Um, and that was coupled with the social justice protests that happened in the wake of George Floyd's death and the sort of uh, upset in the, in the whole um, country, as there should be, about what did it mean um, to support uh, groups of color, communities of color, all of that. Um, and at that time, an organization called the Building Movement Project wanted to understand what is the landscape when we talk about lending during times of crisis and possibility, okay? Um, and they interviewed 433 nonprofit leaders of color to find out what it was like. I just want our listeners to hear from one who was in uh, Philadelphia about um, how tough it was and, and what it was like in that moment. We need money and trust. When we tell you we know what we're doing, you can believe us. We need not just funding for this six month period of crisis, not just for a year, but multiple years of funding so we are enabled and have the capacity and resources to create transformation. That would be my biggest hope. So following up on that, um, Lorna, the work that the Gaston Institute with Amplified Latinx trying to do a, its own, uh, get a sense of what was happening with uh, nonprofits here. I mean, the bottom line is not very much money coming to Latino nonprofits. Uh, the experience uh, uh, of of the woman that we just uh, heard from uh, was pretty universal and 
also particular to Massachusetts. Talk about why you think that is. You know, the Latino Equity Fund and uh, Itza Bouchamp and her colleagues have, um, you know, we did a report of Anselmo's Ya, and we talk about how, yeah, less than 2% of philanthropic dollars in Massachusetts support Latino-serving organizations. We partnered with Amplify Latinx to do a study uh, mapping uh, Latino nonprofits in the state, and we found that, you know, they're really... Um, very few of them have full-time positions. Um, they're, you know, very um, vulnerable to any, you know, just losing one grant, you know, can shut them down. Um, and so why is that is also it's where they're located. So there's some geographic, um, you know, challenges that many Latino nonprofits are in Boston and, and they're, you know, most Latinos don't live in Boston. They live in Lawrence and Holyoke. And so we also don't have like a spreading of those resources, um, enough, uh, organizations in other parts of the state. Um, and so, and then the leadership part, um, you know, there are organizations in areas like Lawrence, like say a boys and girls club that will serve almost a hundred percent you know, Latinx kids, but they're not considered Latinx serving organizations. That's not their mission. And so we're also getting all this pushback now, right, on anything that is supporting targeted affinity groups. You know, we're we're going to be facing even more challenges now. Like, can we fundraise now just for an organization that is serving Latinos? Like, this is, this is where we're at. Um, we're already have challenges. And now if we're mission oriented, right? So when you say in, that in serving you're our specifically referring to the now Supreme we're Court uh, that. recent decision? Yes, you know, this is this was very specific to higher education, but now we're seeing the same groups that mobilize, um, you know, to push that agenda. Um, pushing this in workspaces already, you know, and in other, you know, um, areas of other sectors of uh, public, you know, sphere, um, challenging, right, you know, whether we affirm certain even diversity and equity initiatives are being challenged, right? So people are really pushing that that conservative agenda, and it's going to really harm our communities. Tomas, I want you to pick up from what uh, Lorna's just said, because what we know, and, and I want to make clear, is that well before the Supreme Court decision had any influence or potential influence on these decisions, it was difficult or nearly impossible to get the support for Latino nonprofits. I mean, that's that's a reality. We know that by the numbers. So we want to make that clear. And I want to get you to weigh in on why you think that was or was or continues to be. There are nonprofits that are these organic startups. Um, and it's hard to say this, but in many ways, foundations act and operate like corporations, kind of like what Lorna was sort of alluding to and, and the things that they need in order to sort of function um, and give grants um, the kinds of reports that they need. Um, they, knowing that these might be difficult things for organizations to get going, they just, like they do in banking, it's too small of an organization to make an investment in. 
Um, and so therefore we'll just go with what we know. Here's another organization. We know their numbers, their outcomes, their outputs, you know, what they've done in the past. And that's a lot easier. So I think there's a little bit of that in the environment where organizations that are safer to support and fund, they do. Um, organizations that are bootstrapping it, coming up from the ground are less likely um, to get the type of support you can or should get from the foundation world. Um, I know that um, the disruption grant um, from the new Commonwealth Fund is like an amazing thing that allows for smaller organizations to get the type of C money and support money to keep moving, but those are few and far between. Lena, I believe you talked about the struggle to just get the 5013C and how vital that was. Absolutely. I think it's both having, it, philanthropy is a, a funny industry because although it is very much like Thomas said, and I often say this, is it's investments. It's just that here, the way that we measure is not risk, right? Because we're not ex expecting a return on our money, but it is generosity and it is a feel good thing. Philanthropy is about making sure that you're doing your part in giving and being charitable. And when you have that kind of power dynamic already embedded into a system that you want to be trust-based, it is very relational, especially when it comes to smaller family foundations. There's not a lot of access for Latinos to be building that type of relationship, that type of trust, or that type of institutional knowledge about how to write a grant. And we also saw a report before 2020 from the Race to Lead that showed how many nonprofits that although they were serving youth of color or they were serving immigrant youth or Latino youth, none of them were actually led by folks that were from that community. And so there's a lot of big gaps that need to be fixed in nonprofit. And I think one of the things, as Lorna was saying, that 2020 allowed us is that visibility, right? Like right after 2020, when folks started saying, we should have more BIPOC leaders in nonprofit leadership. We should change the way that we are doing grant funding and be more trust-based philanthropy or community-centric philanthropy or start that, like donor-advised funding instead of just having these really large entities that aren't really seeing the people on the ground. Then that shift happens. And you know, for our organization, it was great because we were like, hey, we've been here. And I guess what I want to emphasize here that um, many of us outside of, of this world might not fully understand is it's really a chicken and the egg. You kind of can't get the funding to grow bigger um, if you can't demonstrate on in the ways as Tomas and, and now uh, Lorna and you have said that sort of mirror the, the corporate structures of, of corporate giving. And if you don't do that, then you're sort of overlooked. Um, and then one of the vital elements of of a Latino nonprofit or one led by somebody from the community is that uh, the the ability to be more impactful goes up 10 percent because you have a built in trust factor. Lena. A hundred percent. And I and I think that that is something that we have now seen post 2020 as we have, like Tom, Tomas mentioned, the new Commonwealth Fund, right? When you have folks from the community leading philanthropic efforts, it is so much easier to know that and to trust that one, they understand the struggles that the communities are going through. I think that is one of the hardest things about grant writing is that not only are you using data to tell the story, but you're 
almost having to validate the issues that the community is facing in a way that you live it every day, right? And when you have folks that are from the community that are leading these philanthropic entities, it is way more, you're more way way more likely to form those relationships that then equal trust, that then equal the ability to have um, grant making. The other thing that I will add to this too is that even if we do have that, the biggest challenge also with the philanthropic sector is that they're usually one-time grants and very small. Mm. So they're not making long-term investments and saying like, listen, we see the vision, we'll support you for multiple years, or we see the vision, we'll just give you money to do what you think you should do. A lot of the philanthropic money goes to restricted programming or restricted outcomes that the funders in particular want and are very, very limited, most of them being one year, uh, very rare. And if they're not one year, you have to reapply for a second year. And that's another really big barrier. Yeah. So, Lorna, we've seen some uh, nonprofits actually shut down uh, for all of some of the, the obstacles that have been discussed here. Uh, but you all are doing some work and about to release a report on second generations of Latino populations that may hint at perhaps uh, a way to begin to think about these communities and getting the getting some of these uh, nonprofit funds um, to them in a better way, more efficient way. Yeah, I mean, well, the most important takeaway uh, that I'd love folks to get is that the Latino population is very young. You know, um, Latinos are like 29% of Latinas are under the age of 17. And only 19% of Latinas are over the age of 55. So, I mean, just look at those numbers of youth, right? Um, and so we are starting to gather some data on the second generation Latinos. We're going to be releasing a report on the October um, 11th. Um, and Representative Andy Vargas is going to be on the panel because, you know, we want to look at, again, where are the educational outcomes? There's second-generation Latinos doing better in terms of home ownership, in terms of educational attainment, um, you know, moving out of these, um, you know, um, lower-wage jobs. Um, so, and we're seeing some positive things there, um, but there still are very uh, real challenges around poverty rates. Um, that, um, you know, are really uh, disturbing and food insecurity continues to be a big issue. And uh, Tomas, you're working uh, with Amplify uh, Latinx to really uh, move some bills that may address some of these issues. Can you speak a little bit about maybe one of them that you know would have a great impact? One of the ones that we are um, super interested in um, is codifying the term micro-business um, into state law, which would allow for um, more um, pandemic aid funding and support to go to businesses that are you know, small and the ones that are really in our neighborhoods, the ones that are most impacted and affected by the pandemic and you know, the thereafter of the pandemic. Um, it would also allow for the creation of a micro-business development center which would hope to grant um, $50,000 $50, grants to folks if they hire for, uh, individuals from the community, um, those and re um, returning citizens, those coming off transitional assistance, those that are local to, to the establishment, so that you can give that business owner the room that they need. We found that there are very few micro lending institutions that give to you know, small businesses of that nature. 
And um, one of the overall, uh, uh, I guess, uh, focuses of both your organization and the Gaston Institute, and by virtue of what you do, Lena, um, is really to highlight and um, amplify, if I may take your word, leadership, <laughs> Latino leadership in the state at all levels. And um, I note that uh, Governor Healy just announced a whole panel of folks, a lot of names that some people knew and others that they didn't, a commission that I presume is going to uh, raise more awareness in a very uh, tangible way. Uh, Tomas, do you want to s- speak to that? Yeah, I mean, just already provided um, preliminary recommendations to the governor um, from the moment, from almost from the inception of the group or the start of the group. They hit the ground running, um, establishing um, listening sessions throughout the state um, in all key areas that are heavily weighted for Latinos um, and prepared, you know, through the great work of Gaston and others, um, a report to begin to educate, not educate, but really work with the governor on the things that they can, that she can do um, in her first years of the administration. Um, Lena, what would you like to see have happened? What would you like to have happened in five years from now, if we're having this conversation, that you would hope would be changed by some of some of uh, what's now um, already in play, the, the, the governor's commission, uh, the bills in the, the legislature, the uh, raising awareness around um, some of the issues that have been problems for Latino nonprofits. Five years from now, what would you like to see in place that would have a whole different outcome, one would assume? I think the first one is cross-sector solutions. Um, I think that when we talk about Latino issues in particular, it gets really easy to segment, right? Like whether it's an immigrant policy issue or whether it's an education and pathways to ELL and um, assimilation, right? Like there's so many layers to the the social issues that Latinos face that I would really like to see a well-rounded cross-sector representation on those solution makers so that it's not just the politicians or not just the nonprofit workers or not just the businesses that are Latino-led and Latino-serving, but really everybody in the community. I think a second thing that I would like to see is also the continued, and and we're going to use Amplify, but the continued amplification (laughs) of youth and youth leadership. And then And lastly, of course, access to capital. And I think that goes throughout and not just in nonprofit, but in businesses as well. You know, we have so many young girls and women that go through our programs that are entrepreneurs that want to launch their own business. And our biggest, biggest challenge is supporting them on how to pitch, how to get capital, how to apply for grants. And I think that if we are able to create more access to the way that funds our access, what is good for us is good for the whole community. Uh, that I think that's a great way to end this conversation. Thank you all for joining me. Thank, Thank you. you for having us, Callie. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Adios. Dr. Lorna Rivera is the director of the Mauricio Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Lena Canyon is the director of finance operations and development for the Chica Project. And Tomas Gonzalez is Director of Community and Advocacy for Amplify Latinx. Coming up, it makes sense that one of the co-hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, the popular podcast, 
first embraced her love of pop culture as a kid. Aisha Harris channeled that burgeoning interest in pop culture and built a career describing and deconstructing music, movies, TV, and unique trends. She shares her observations about living and loving pop culture in a new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Thank you.